The elders have decided that it is time for us to consider the addition of new elders. Oh, today you will notice that the lesson from Randy is about the qualifications or test of elders. Next week will be our senior Sunday, but then the following week Randy will be talking about the role of elders. At that time, on April 25th, we will start accepting any letters of recommendation, any names that you would like for us to consider for this role of elder. We do ask at that time, though, before you uh, uh, submit a letter to any one of the elders or to the church office, before you do so, please talk with the person that you think is qualified. Ask them if they are willing to serve in that role. We, uh, we, we would prefer receiving names from people who are willing to do this job. Um, we also ask that when you do submit your letter that you would sign that. So today, the lesson about the qualifications of elders, two weeks, a lesson about the uh, role of elders. At that time, we'll start accepting those letters from you, the congregation, and uh, for a period of two weeks. Thank you. Good morning. You're going to be glad you're here today. Uh, this is a, a good day, and I'm glad to stand before you and be able to say that. As Wade said, this is a two-part uh, teaching and today we're going to talk about what the Bible says about um, who these men are to be, their qualifications, and then in two weeks, uh, their role, uh, the function, uh, and a little bit about our role and our response to them. You know, a few months back when John Simmons and Sonny Lee uh, returned to being elders, it was announced then that we would be adding more men, and um, now it is time, and we're grateful for that. Uh, I will share this, and you know this already, uh, this is a good, healthy time for this church. Uh, we don't have any uh, crises going on, there's not trouble, it's not that we're about to go under and we need more help to keep the, the boat afloat. Uh, things are good, things are well, and I'm glad that we can say that. I would also stand before you and say, um, some of our men who serve as elders they would say, are not getting any younger. Uh, and I think a lot of that has motivated their need, just to have more help, and we're grateful for that. I think you could ask any elder uh, and minister for that fact, and they'll tell you there are times where they are so feeling inadequate, uh, they would love to resign, they feel like somebody could do it better. Uh, I think that's just part of the, the human nature. Uh, in my mind, when I hear an elder talk like that, it makes me appreciate them even more. Um, they are aware of the gravity of the role and what all goes with it. But again, today, it's a, it's a healthy day. So the elders have asked me to lead our church in this study. Um, and even if you've studied this before, uh, maybe it's been a while, I want us to look at these uh, Bible passages with fresh eyes kind of remind ourselves or maybe learn anew exactly who these men are to be. I need to share this. Um, John Simmons has written a book or is in the process of writing a book on elders, um, which is fantastic. Uh, he gave me two chapters to help as we were talking about, you know, what do we need to share? You know, what was our focus and how many lessons? So he gave me two chapters, one that deals with the qualifications and one about the role. So I told the elders that I have about, for these two sermons, each of them will last about two and a half hours. <clears throat> Good stuff. 
Well, one of the elders quickly said, we think that whoever is still here after two and a half hours, those will be the names that we might consider uh, to be an elder. So a lot of information to share. If you've uh, got your Bible, open it to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's going to be our text. Uh, Also a passage uh, from uh, Titus chapter 1. And on the back of the bulletin is an outline. You can use that to, to follow along. While you're turning, I also want to say this is also a call to prayer. We need to be in prayer for this. Satan would love nothing more than to use this opportunity to ruin something good. So anytime you add to the eldership, to the leadership, it's a pivotal time. So we need to be in prayer. Pray for our elders. Uh, Pray for the members of this church family as we seek among us those who are already shepherding souls, doing the work that we're going to be talking about even without the official title. Uh, Pray for the men. Pray for their families, the men that God will call through this process. And pray for this church as we look to the future with faith and excitement. I'm excited about the future of this church. I hope you are too. We have a rich history, much to be grateful for, and I believe we are grateful. But we're also looking to the future with anticipation for what God is going to do through us and in us as we work together. So with that being said, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and kind of work our way through this uh, study today. Two police officers were called to a traffic accident, and when they arrived on the scene, it was not a pretty picture. In fact, all the, uh, the people inside the car were knocked unconscious, but like um, mother, father, and two children, So the ambulance came soon thereafter, and they were taking the unconscious people to get medical care, and the police officer noticed a monkey in the car. And so they thought, well, we can't leave this monkey. And so they, they looked at the monkey there, and they noticed that he was trying to communicate with them in some way. And so the police officers didn't know what to do, so they just asked him what was going on, And so they asked the monkey, what was the father doing? And the monkey kind of mimicked, like, drinking a little. So they said, well, what was the mother doing? And the monkey started doing this. Oh, I get it. So the father was drinking, and the the mother was kind of getting on to him. So what were the kids doing? And the monkey started doing this, like, oh, okay, well, the kids were fighting. Well, that kind of makes sense. If the father's drinking, the mother's shaming him, and the kids are fighting, no wonder they had an accident. So they asked, well, what were you doing? And the monkey did this. (laughs) Here's the question. Who is steering this church? Who is leading? I mean, we're, we're all in this together, but who's in charge? That's what we want to study for the next couple of moments. You know, if you've ever served on a board of directors, planning committee, uh, a PTA or a PTO, whatever it is, you know that, you know, you work hard, you give a lot of hours, and there is an amazing lack of appreciation for that kind of service. You ever been there? I mean, you, you give so much, and there's just no thanks and no affirmation. But when something goes wrong, the letters pour in. The emails flood in. People stop you in the halls. They, they may even write their, uh, their negative thoughts on social media. But the simple fact is this. If those messages would have much more impact, if at some point 
you expressed thanks and appreciation along the way. You know, we are in this together. Being an elder in the church can be a thankless job. When things are going well, we don't think much about the elders because things are going well. But when things are not going well, people can confront an, uh, an elder and challenge them. And it's true in every church. So being a leader can be thankless. It can be difficult. It can be stress-filled. It can be time-consuming. One man said this, It is difficult to be a leader because you cannot really tell if people are following you or chasing you. Well, we're going to look at what it means to be a shepherd, to be an elder. Well, let me begin by introducing our elders. I put all their pictures on the screen. I hope you know them all. I hope you all know them. You know their names. But if you're new, you may still be struggling to put the names with all the faces. Left to right, top to bottom, Bill Alsup, Tom Anderson, John Corn, Wade Denny, Jerry Duggan, Mike Kessler, John Law, Sonny Lee, John Simmons, and John Smith. And surrounding each of these is a Christian family who also loves the Lord, and they're supportive and understanding and kind. I need to begin by saying how much I appreciate these men for what they do for the Lord and for this church. And they're so kind and supportive of me. But you all need to know also that I am accountable to them. They don't just rubber stamp the things I bring up or suggest uh, they are the ones who are leading this church, and they give so much time. Charles Swindoll defines leadership as influence that inspires. Influence that inspires. I love that definition, and I think that definition fits our elders. But even more so, consider what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write, 1 Timothy 3.1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So that's the first question. What is this noble task of an overseer? We'll talk more about this in two weeks. But there are basically three New Testament words that are often translated as elders in our English Bibles. And each one communicates a different angle or, or different responsibilities. The first is presbyteros, which means elder or mature. Doesn't necessarily mean age as in years, but age as in maturity of faith. So they're spiritually mature. And if you study the Bible, you know that the word elder is very much a part of Scripture. Because back in Jewish culture, elders governed the towns and the synagogues. Uh, you may remember the 12 tribes had elders. So that's one term, one Greek word. Another is episkopos, and that means overseer. As in 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So that word overseer, that directing the affairs of the church, that's more of a, a manager role, a, a supervisor kind of term. And so they're delegating. They're delegating to deacons and other ministry leaders and others who can carry out the different works of the church so that their main calling, prayer and time in the Word, can be uh, utilized and their efforts can be focused on that. The work gets done, and even more people are involved in ministry. It's also good for us to remember the church is not a democracy. We live in a, in a government that is democratic, and we're used to getting our vote. But that's not the way the church is organized. It's not a democracy. 
It is, biblically speaking, a Christocracy. Christ is the head. Peter explains that Christ is the chief shepherd, the chief shepherd. And the elders then are under shepherds. Look at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. So I exhort you, elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. So that's that episkopos, that overseer kind of term. And then the third is poimano, which is translated pastor or shepherd. If the first two are about decision-making and governing, delegating, this one, the pastor, the shepherding role, is really more of the nature of the work. Pastors are the one to lead the flock of sheep, to love them, to know the sheep by name, to protect the sheep from predators, to feed the sheep. To lead the sheep by setting an example. Look what Paul spoke to the elders at the church of Ephesus. Acts 20 verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's that first word. And then he writes, be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So the shepherd then is to lead by example. They lead by being there, by attendance, not necessarily doing it all, but very much being involved. They're in touch. They're jumping in to help as needed. They're prayerful. They're praying for us. They lead by going first. So whenever you're signing up to do something or volunteer to do something, you're going to see an elder there too or visiting or, or whatever is going on. Their lifestyle says, just as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Now in two weeks, we're going to talk a little bit more about their function. But let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you look at the outline there, you're going to see five qualifying tests. And basically just outlining this, uh, this passage. So let's kind of walk through these together. The first is a test of desire. That's what he says. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Well, the obvious question, if it's thankless, if it requires so much time, if it's not appreciated by much, why would anybody want that? Why would you desire that kind of position? But if you ask anybody who serves as an elder, you know there's no arm-twisting here. Many elders I know, including some who are serving now, had been asked a number of times before they could fully say they were ready, that they were willing, that they desired the role. So they needed to desire to lead. Why is that? Well, let me suggest three reasons why. One is pretty obvious, an unashamed love for Jesus and his church. They love Jesus. They want his church to do well. They want there to be good elders, good leaders. And so there's that, that desire. It's not about power. It's not about personal gain. They want the church to do well. That's what's prompting that, that desire. I think another is the prompting of the Spirit of God. If God gives you an ability 
And that God also provides an opportunity. There is something within you that you think, I must, I need to, I want to. Because you feel like God has provided you that opportunity and the gifts to serve. And we're all that way. I think God wires us that way. And the same is true in this situation. And then third, I think the gift of leadership that we might have that craves fulfillment. When God has gifted you with the ability to do something, then you want to use your talents to serve and to do good. Again, it's just the way God created us. You know, there are some things that are a spectator sport. You know, you you go to a a ball game in in a major football stadium, and you pass through the tailgating. We're all going to watch the game, but how often do you see people throwing a football back and forth? You can't help but want to be a part of the game. It's just kind of part of it. If you love music, you love to sing, and you go to a concert of maybe your favorite artist, you don't sit there in the seat quietly. You sing along. You have the gift. Sometimes you sing along even if you don't have the gift. But you love it, and you just want to be a part of it. It's just, again, it's the way God made us. You have the gift to lead, and you see the opportunity, and you put those two together. A leader is fulfilled when the gift of leadership is used. And when God has blessed you in that way, then you have that desire to want to lead. But then there's the test of character. And what follows is a very long list, and we need to go through each one of these. Verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Now that doesn't say above criticism, because nobody is above criticism. And no accusation of the enemy is true. Titus wrote, uh, and Paul wrote to Titus, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. I think we understand that. Then he says, the husband of one wife. Even among the most uh, uh, conservative scholars, there's much disagreement as to what this means. Some think husband of one wife means he must be married. Others will say he must not be a polygamist. Others will say he must not be divorced and remarried. And some will say he must not be widowed and remarried. But literally speaking, what is written there in the Greek means a one-woman man. That's what he's saying there, a one-woman man devoted to his wife, above the accusation of being immoral. If someone were even to talk about it, you would just quickly go, nope, nope, because you just know them being that devoted to his spouse. Here's another consideration. If it were to mean never in a second marriage, this is the only one qualification that's not in the present tense. All the rest, and the way they're written, is the present tense. For example, when it talks about later not being greedy for money, not 20 years ago, but who are you today? So again, understanding what the text says and what the text doesn't say. Husband of one wife. Sober-minded. Self-controlled. The NIV says temperate and self-controlled. What he's talking about there, you're not controlled by peer pressure. Not controlled by money. You're not controlled by alcohol. You're not controlled by drugs. Again, Paul wrote to Titus, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Period. Respectable. He's well-behaved. 
That word respectable is the same word that Paul used in 1 Timothy 2.9 to talk about women must dress modestly. Same word, modesty, respectable. It talks about appropriate. Their actions are appropriate. Their life is appropriate. Their choices is it's respectable. That's what he's talking about there. Share a quote from John Simmons. Simply stated, respect requires respectability. Furthermore, though one think, may think he has earned respect, respect is actually conferred by others. If they do not give it, you do not have it. And then it says hospitable. What does hospitable mean? Again, going back to the Greek, hospitable means in the original language to take ministers on lavish vacations. <clears throat> Look it up. It means to love the stranger. So more than just taking care of your family, which you should do, to be hospitable means you have a love for strangers. You are hospitable. It means providing the necessities to those who are not in your household. And think about all these qualities. If, if you don't know this, all of us should aspire to all of these. They're just good. If you're following Jesus, this should describe you. Given to hospitality. We think of having people in your home, but sometimes we think, you know, I don't have anything from Pottery Barn. I don't have a house that's a showcase. I can't do that. Let me tell you, when C and I moved to Coleman, Alabama, to be the minister there, our children were three, four, and six. And one of the elders and his wives invited us to their home. They were both retired teachers. They had a modest ranch house, a little carport, one-car carport on the side. You've got the picture. We go, and you know what they served us? Hot dogs. You know why? Because we had a three-, four-, and six-year-old child. And you know who's really happy about that? Mama and Daddy. That was the gift of hospitality. It's not about a huge, wonderful meal. It was about opening your home and opening your hearts and making people feel well. They made my children feel welcome. That's the gift of hospitality. That's what I think he's talking about here. John wrote this in his book. While we often think of this characteristic as relative to one welcoming others into their homes or offices, the hospitable man is also just as gracious when he is the guest and visitor showing respect for the spaces of others, whether they be meager or majestic. See, at the heart of hospitality is that you understand people, and people are comfortable being with you in your home, and their home. And, and I would add a word to me that, as I understand this, is approachable. And think about that from an elder. You want an elder who is approachable. If you need advice, if you're spiritually discouraged, if your family's in a crisis, you want to be able to go someone and go, I'm in trouble. I need help. You want an elder who is hospitable. Able to teach. First, to be able to teach, you must be a student of the word. Paul wrote this to Titus. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. One well, of the main roles of an elder is to feed the flock. So whether that's in leading a Bible class or, or helping in faith farm or volunteering in vacation Bible school or leading a prayer group or part of a small group Bible study, elders are to be able to teach. 
They're in the word. They are a student of the word. Not a master of the word. None of us are masters. We're all learning. William Barclay wrote this. Our most effective teaching is not done by speaking, but by being. Isn't that true? The ultimate duty is not to talk, but to show. So then you've got a man who's in the word and his life reflects it. Verse 3, not a drunkard. NIV says not given to drunkenness. John wrote this, better yet, it would be best that he not use alcohol at all to set an example to those he leads and not become a stumbling block to those who might be less able to control their use. Not violent, but gentle. Elders from time to time have to deal with very highly emotional and volatile issues. And you don't need a hothead in those kind of situations. Someone who's not violent but gentle. Someone who has the ability to discern between the issue and the personality or the messenger. So it's the words they use. It's the tone of voice. It's even body language. Gentle. We don't think of that often to describe an elder, but it's in there. An elder is to be gentle. He wrote to, to, Thomas, to, to Titus, a lover of good. Think about that, a lover of good. What an awesome word to describe one of God's leaders. Not quarrelsome. Some people love a fight. An elder should not love a fight. They're not to be argumentative, not like to argue. John wrote this, men with a high level of peace within them are rare but necessary to lead the church. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, he wrote to Titus, Paul did. Proverbs 23 says, it is to a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. Again, all of us need to be trying to live by these. Not a lover of money. Or to Titus, he wrote, not greedy for gain. It's noteworthy that the Bible neither praises nor condemns poverty or wealth. You know, from time to time, you'll read in the news or you hear about a church leader who embezzles the money. And they leave a, the church in a, in a lurch and the whole city kind of gets, becomes aware of that. And it's so embarrassing. It's just so shameful when that happens. But another reason we shouldn't be a lover of money is the elder's greed sets a terrible example to the rest of the church. And here's another reason. If he's greedy, he won't be willing to take a risk to step out in faith. Now, he might disguise that with talks of being frugal and being good stewards of God's resources, but in reality, it may be that he's just stingy or he's greedy and lacking in faith. Well, then he talks about family. The third test is the test of family relationships. So he has his own individual character, but what about those closest to him? Look at verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. That's the English Standard Version. I like the way the NIV says it. And see that his children obey him with proper respect. One author wrote this, the elders should not have to go to a PTA meeting under an assumed name. Verse 5, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
He wrote to Titus, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. You know, if there is one category or one description that seems to, to make a man uh, the least likely to want to uh, step up and be an elder, it might be this one. They don't want their children to have that extra scrutiny or their wife, their own marriage. I don't think this is mentioned for us to pull out our magnifying glasses and to put people to undue inspection. I think what Paul is saying here is you look at the family situation. If he's got a good home, a solid home, a good marriage, a good leader at home, he demonstrates that not only can he lead his home well, he can lead the church well. And the church is the family. The Bible talks about that. In some ways, there's a lot of similarities there. And you can tell a lot about a man's ability by the overall family dynamic. And then fourth is the test of experience. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Yeah, there may be a temptation to appoint someone or to select or nominate someone before they're truly ready. You know, it may be that that, that person has some strong leadership, uh, leadership gifts, and you see that in a whole bunch of other arenas. Or maybe they have a dynamic personality. Or maybe in that church setting, they're really needed, and you think, oh, they would be great for that. But recent convert means not newly planted. Leonard Ravenhill tells about a group of tourists who went through a picturesque village and they saw an old man leaning against the fence and in a rather patronizing way, one of the tourists said, were any great men born in this village? And the old man replied, nope, only babies. (laughs) Don't you love that? See, the text doesn't specify how recent, does it? So this is not a recent convert. And it could be taken to an extreme. Sometimes we project our own experience into what that means. If it took us 20 years to truly come to a maturity of faith, when we felt like even well after our baptism that we finally got it, then we think, okay, it will take you 20 years. But that may not necessarily be the case. I do think it's interesting to note that on his first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul backtracked, remember that? To the churches that he had visited and, and converted a lot of people, helped establish the churches, and when he backtracked all of those, appointed elders in those cities. Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now, we don't know the exact timeline there, but we know it wasn't 20 years. So a man can be an elder without being 50 or have a head full of gray hair or a head that has no hair. It depends on their spiritual maturity. That's what he's talking about. And number five, finally, the test of reputation. Verse seven, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. So not only does he need to be thought well of by the church, by those in the flock, other members of the congregation, but also in the community, at work, on the ball field. 
his reputation at work, if it's that he's dishonest, if it's that he has a filthy mouth, if he's not the kind that keeps his word, people on the outside know that. They see that. And if they learn then that that person has been asked or is now leading a church, they're thinking, if that's the leader of the church, then I don't want to have anything to do with those, with those people. That's the devil's trap for the unbeliever. They're looking for a reason to say no to Jesus. And that's one, one of the top of the list there. He loves to exploit that kind of hypocrisy. And that person disgraces the church. The elders walk has to match their talk. It's consistent both at church on Sunday and at work Monday through Friday, on the ball field, in, in, in recreation, when they're on vacation, everywhere. That's who they are. I think I may have shared this story with you, but I want to share it again to kind of illustrate what we're talking about. A minister, after worship, was approached by a television reporter saying this, I understand that a high-ranking official in your church has been arrested for child molesting, and we're going to do a live shot from the church, and we'd like to interview you. Now, the minister already knew that they had already done a news clip saying this, standing in front of their church, saying, high-ranking church official arrested for child molesting. Stay tuned for details. How would you respond? He asked the reporter if he would just walk with him and visit in his office for just a moment. And then he asked the reporter, who informed you that a high-ranking official at our church has been arrested for child molesting? The reporter admitted it was an anonymous tip that he had not thoroughly researched. The preacher explained, yes, there was a man who's a part of their church, who had been arrested for molesting children. But he was not an elder. He was not a deacon. He was not a staff member, not a high-ranking church official at all. And the children that he'd been accused of molesting were from within the community, not at the church. And the church had done everything they could do to prevent that kind of abuse happening. He also explained to the reporter that they had tried, as soon as they learned about what happened with this man, to tell the truth and to be repentant. And he told the church leaders that were talking to him that the reason that was a a problem for him is that for 30 years he had been addicted to pornography. So the preacher said to the reporter, I suggest that instead of doing a live shot from the church building, You take your cameras down, and you do a live shot from the pornography store. The news station did leave the church grounds, and they didn't do a story from there. And later, the news director called the church to apologize. But I remind you of that incident to point out really what you already know. The world is poised, even eager, ready to find somebody at church, blow it. And they want to put a magnifying glass on that and a megaphone for everyone to see. What is that? I don't know. Is it jealousy? Is it Satan working through those avenues? Is it a guilty conscience? 
I'm not sure what, what, what's causing all that. Maybe it's just sensational news and it gets the ratings. But here's the truth. When a church leader embarrasses the church, it becomes the devil's trap for the world. And they can say, I don't need it. If that's Jesus, if that's, if that's the church, then I don't need that. Look on the screen. I put a quote here from Chuck Colson in his book, Kingdoms in Conflict. It kind of talks about this whole idea of leading and power. And let's make sure we've got the right understanding. Because if we're not careful, what we're going to do is bring our world's way of thinking of leadership and project it on the church instead of what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write. Chuck wrote this, Nothing distinguished the kingdoms of man from the kingdom of God more than their diametrically opposed views of the exercise of power. One seeks to control people, the other to serve people. One to promote self, other prostrates self. One seeks prestige and position, and the other lifts up the lowly and the despised. And then he gives this warning. Power is like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. The lure of power can separate the most resolute of Christians from the true nature of Christian leadership, which is service to others. It is difficult to stand on a pedestal and wash the feet of those below. So here's the question for you to be praying about for the next two weeks. And again, as Wade shared earlier, no names need to even be given until two weeks. So in the meantime, you be thinking, you be praying, whom do we select to be our shepherd, to be our overseer, to be an elder? Again, look at the screen, the very verses. Look at them again. 1 Timothy 3. This is who we're looking for. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then from Titus, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Here's something I want you to think about. Do you remember when the church was just getting started in the early chapters of the book of Acts and there were some Grecian widows that were not being taken care of and so they they said to to select some men among you and some call those the first deacons. But do you remember one of the descriptions there? To be full of the Holy Spirit. To be full of the Holy Spirit. 
John Simmons wrote kind of a concluding in his chapter, the fact is, without the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, no one will ever be able to attain these qualities in sufficient degree. When you think about becoming a child of God, and you confess your faith that Jesus is the Son of God, you have your sins washed away in baptism, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's not just a pat on the back as you make your way through the rest of life. That is how you're going to make it. The Holy Spirit will continue to teach you what is true and rebuke you when you're wrong. It will train your conscience so that you can stay in step with the Spirit. Remember Paul talking about that? That's what we're looking for. A man who is full of the Holy Spirit. And that's really what all of us should aspire to. So that's our invitation as we close today. To give you the opportunity to become a child of God. So that you can have salvation. Not only your sins washed away. Not only your name written in the Lamb's book of life. But also the Holy Spirit living in you. If you'd like to accept the invitation Become a child of God, or if we can pray for you in any way, would you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?